how would you like to test your blood ketones for just $1 per strip? Join the Keto Clarity Club at bestketonetest.com for the Keto Mojo blood ketone and blood glucose testing. And join the club to get $1 strips when purchased in vials of 50. You get to choose how often they will ship to you and you'll still get that $1 price per strip. And while you're at bestketonetest.com, make sure you get the meter. And we also have glucose strips sold in vials of 50 and you'll get $5 off with the coupon code JIMMY. There's also the Ketonian Special Kit, which allows you to get the meter, Lancet, as well as a starter pack of blood ketone test strips. Again, it's bestketonetest.com for the Keto Mojo blood ketone and blood glucose testing. Bestketonetest.com. Today's featured audio is from the 2017 Low Carb USA San Diego event. Visit lowcarbusa.org for more information about the July 26th through the 29th, 2018 Low Carb USA event in San Diego, California. Ah, uh, living la vida low carb. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up the avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast hosted by Jim. Me more. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show.com. Woo! The disclosure side, I'm not selling anything. I don't make any money from anything anymore. But, uh, so. At any rate, when I, when I told Doug uh, I was going to talk about ED, he said, oh, ED. So I'm, I'm still waiting for him to explain what the bathtub deal is. I, I never, I don't know what it is with the bathtub. And uh, I don't know. Does anybody get it? <laughs> At any rate... Uh, the Viagra ads are even getting racier and racier, so I guess when Doug knew how old I was, he thought I would be an expert in <laughs> ED. So um, I had to say, no, 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 not that ED. So what ED is it? It's endothelial dysfunction. Oh. <laughs> Did we just go limp? <laughs> Anyway, it should be called endothelial cell dysfunction, probably, to make a distinction, and we wouldn't have that confusion. The endothelium is the lining of our blood vessels. All 60,000 miles have a single cell layer lining it that uh, controls the circulatory system. Um, it's the largest distributed organ in the body. Now, I spent a good part of my adult life in the cardiac operating room, and I used to have hair as well. <laughs> I did over 5,000 coronary bypass operations. I did a couple of thousand mitral and aortic valve replacements, hundreds and hundreds of abdominal aneurysms, peripheral vascular disease, carotid endarterectomies, as well as lung cancer and a few other things, but had a very, very busy career for 25 years. <clears throat> And uh, doing 
uh, doing a lot of work. Now, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, I had a hammer, and it was coronary bypass, and I'm, I'm guilty. I was busy uh, patching people up at the end stage of coronary disease. It was pretty satisfying. We were um, reducing symptoms. We were delaying deaths in some dramatic circumstances. It was even a very dramatic uh, life-saving uh, experience, and so I was pretty happy. I really didn't care what caused coronary disease. I didn't care. I had my hammer, my hammer was working, and I didn't care what caused coronary disease. Now, it was Mark Twain who described the law of the instrument, and I was guilty. It's the natural human tendency to be over-dependent on our narrow skill sets. I had a narrow skill set, but I was pretty good at doing it. And uh, so, once again, I didn't care very much. But I was trying to make my hammer better. Now, the cardiopulmonary bypass machine was an absolute miracle in terms of allowing us to repair things on the heart. But the heart-lung machine has lots of side effects. Um, about 2.5% of people who go on the cardiopulmonary bypass machine have a stroke. 60 or 70% of people have temporary cognitive um, difficulty. They most get over it, but they got... We used to call it bubble brain or pump brain. Uh, it was cognitive impairment for a certain period of time. Now, with, there were some of us who said, if we could do the coronary bypass without using the heart-lung machine, maybe we could make this better. Now, I wasn't the first one to do that, but I was an early adopter. And so, with some other surgeons, we helped industry refine and develop these tools. And so, we had this cute little... Uh, little uh, arm there with some suction cups on it. We made these little hickeys on the heart. At any rate, we could stabilize just that one little spot on the heart, let it keep beating, but stabilize just that one little spot so we could do our anastomosis. And at first, we could only do the vessels on the very front of the heart, the left anterior descending and the proximal right coronary. But uh, with the aid of this cute little suction cup, we were able to lift the heart up, and we could do the distal right coronary, we could do the circumflex coronary, and so we could do all the vessels. We could do a complete revascularization of the heart without using the heart-lung machine. Now, not every surgeon was comfortable with this because it took a little more effort, it took a little more patience, and you, you didn't have the quiet, bloodless field, and you didn't have the security of the heart-lung machine. But we felt it was in advance, and we got pretty good at it, I'll say immodestly. We had surgeons come from around the world to my operating room and watch us do it to learn how to get proficient at doing this. Now, was it really better? My partner and I did 1,000 consecutive coronary bypass operations with zero strokes and no cognitive impairment. Hospital stays were shortened by two days at least. So it was an advance. I was trying to make my hammer better. And it was all good fun until the cardiologist decided that no one should be alive without at least five stents. So there are five stents in this coronary, and it makes a, makes a nice pretty picture, doesn't it? In picture C, looks smooth. But in reality, they probably didn't 
prolong this person's life or, or make anything any better, but it's a pretty picture. <clears throat> now, once again, I didn't care very much about what caused coronary disease, but as time went on, I realized that although I was winning battles every day, we were losing the war against coronary disease. Why should we just treat it at its end stage? Why couldn't we move upstream a little bit? And why couldn't we maybe prevent this? So um, I started looking and thinking and studying, and I came to the conclusion that heart disease was a nutritional disorder. I had been treating it as a mechanical solution, plugged up pipes. I was a plumber, a glorified plumber, maybe not glorified. But at any rate, uh, I decided I had to do something different. I started making noise at the hospital where I was chief of staff. Well, they didn't want to hear about it. So I closed my surgical practice in 2003 and opened a weight loss clinic. I figured if I could get people to lose weight, I could help them eliminate their risks of coronary disease or reduce their risk of coronary disease. So for a year, I did that. I was absolutely thrilled that Weight loss was almost a side effect. We were reducing diabetic medications, eliminating insulin, taking them off their antihypertensives, stopping their lipid-lowering medicines. I saved one young woman $1,000 a month on medications alone. So <clears throat> at the end of that year, I, I, I said, I, you know, this is working. I'm right. I need to spread the word a little wider. I need to get some more people understanding that they really can cure and, and prevent and reduce heart disease. So I wrote a book. I wrote uh, that article that Doug talked about that's been shared on Facebook probably more than a million times now. I did an online course about coronary disease. Uh, I was on Fox News a couple of times as a, cardi uh, as a coronary disease expert. So I was making a lot of noise. And so uh, if I was right, that we could cure and prevent heart disease. I was a huge threat to the revenue stream of the hospitals, and I was a huge threat to the credibility of mainstream medicine, which I always considered myself part of. So some four years after I retired completely from practicing, the Arizona Medical Board reviewed some cases that went back as far as 10 years. Now, those of you who are doctors know that if you review a case with a complication, you can always, 100% of the time, you can find fault somewhere. So I'll admit that maybe I made some mistakes in dealing with them, but they seemed very, very intent on hurting me. And so after they reviewed these cases, they revoked my medical license. So in some ways, I didn't care. I wasn't using it. If I'm not driving a car, I don't need a driver's license. In other ways, it hurt me very deeply. Here I'd been faithful, member of the community for all these years, serving, and then they put a blemish on an otherwise blemished 25 years career. Now, is it a blemish? Or is it a badge of honor for having the courage to speak out? Now, <clears throat> I'm no Tim Noakes, but I know how he feels and what he's gone through. So anyway, on to a more cheerful note, after I retired from surgery, I fell in with a bad crowd at the gym. 
<clears throat> and started doing triathlons. Now, San Diego, by the way, is the, the birthplace of triathlon. In Mission Bay in 1974 was the first time there was a swim, bike, run competition. Well, I did my first full-distance Ironman on my 65th birthday. <clears throat> a little 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, and then a marathon. So I've now completed 10 full Ironmans. I've won five of them in my age group. I've been to the World Championship in Kona five times. Finished on the podium twice, uh, my highest placing was fourth. Now, I tell you that mostly to convince you that I'm not very smart. <laughs> but I tell you that because I have a very strong family history of coronary artery disease. My grandfather died of a heart attack. Both my parents uh, died a bit prematurely of cardiovascular disease. Uh, father died of a stroke. <clears throat> My mother uh, died after an operation for a coronary bypass and a valve replacement after she'd been on dialysis for six or seven years because of complications of type 2 diabetes. And I look back and I, maybe I didn't take good care of them. But they had coronary disease. I have an older brother who's got one coronary stent. He's got type 2 insulin-dependent diabetes. Uh, he's got peripheral vascular disease. He's got a lesion in his carotid artery. My younger brother... Um, is a little brighter. He is able to control his type 2 diabetes with um, diet. My younger sister is morbidly, was morbidly obese and suffered from uh, obesity-associated cancers. <clears throat> now, I tell you this because here I am at age 74, able to do these athletic events. About a year ago, I had just had to beat this other dude up a hill on my bike. <laughs> At the top of the hill, I got this chest pain. Oh, crap. So I slowly ride home. I lay down. A friend of ours, also a cyclist and a doctor, had just died about two months previously in bed, asleep. And uh, so I said, oh, if I'm dead in bed here, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> so I go to the ER. There's some EKG changes, and I get a, a cardiac catheterization, which to the disappointment of my friend, the cardiologist who did it, who thought he was going to put a couple of stents in. And to my great relief, my coronary artery angiogram was completely normal. Not a lump, not a bump. My calcium score is zero. Now, <clears throat> strong family history. They're all really sick from coronary disease. I'm not. Was I adopted? Am I a mutant of some kind? <laughs> or is there another difference? And I think there is. When I was a surgery resident uh, in 1973, I was getting pretty fat by eating all the free donuts we had. So I picked up this little diet book and tried to follow its instructions. So, <clears throat> thank you, Dr. Atkins. Thank you, Jackie. So let's talk about the endothelial cell. It's a barrier. For a long time, we thought it was just a cellophane lining, 
But as time went on, we realized, you know, all the functions that it had. Indeed, it is a barrier. It lets some things through and keeps some things out. Uh, it controls, it's really the brains of the cardiovascular system. The heart, for all that we ascribe to it, is a, just a, a simple-minded pump. It pumps whatever comes to it, it pumps it out. And the endothelium controls this by changing the resistance. And you all know the formula, flow equals pressure times resistance. So in the, in the resistance vessels, the endothelium controls them and distributes the blood into organs in different ways and different times. So it really is the driver of where the blood goes and how much it goes. The endothelial cell controls whether, we, whether the blood flows freely or begins to clot. And it's responsible for repairing itself and making new blood vessels if we have a wound uh, that, where we need new blood vessels. Now, <clears throat> every, stop and think about it. Everything that we take in has got to go across that endothelial cell to get to our other tissues. And now all the waste products, except poopy, of course, has got to get back through that endothelial cell to be eliminated by the kidneys or carbon dioxide. So there are several mechanisms by which things cross. There's hydrostatic pressure. There's osmotic pressure. In some cases, there's passive diffusion because of that. In other cases, there's active transport of things across the endothelium to get to our cells or for the waste products to get out. Now, in the stenting and angioplasty have largely replaced uh, coronary bypass surgery. Um, but in the early days of angioplasty, there became a big problem. These lesions would close again. It's called restenosis. And it was, a, it was a threat to the catheter industry, so they began to pour a lot of money into studying exactly what happened and exactly why uh, these things would close again. So this article uh, by uh, Russell Ross in 1999 was a seminal article indicating that atherosclerosis is an inflammatory disease. Now, Ross was a student of vascular cell biology for his whole career, and although he was not an MD, he became the chairman of the pathology department at the University of Washington. Now, sadly enough, he died three months after this article was published of cancer, so be careful, those of you that are publishing articles. <laughs> at any rate, he detailed very carefully the mechanisms. And perhaps no one has written more uh, in the medical literature or in the lay press than Peter Libby and Paul Ridker of Harvard. And they've been prolific. They had a, a cell biology laboratory. They, they studied it a lot, you know, how many PhD papers came out of that place. So they knew. And so he's written articles that were in Scientific American and, and all over the lay press, as well as many, many, many articles. And Peter Libby is probably the leader in understanding atherosclerosis and inflammation. Now, the endothelial cell just sits there, and the red cells go by, the plasma goes by, everything is happily going on, unless inflammation occurs. And if inflammation occurs, then there's what's called adhesion molecules secreted either by the endothelial cell or by some cells remotely. 
these, in, these adhesion molecules cause the white cells, which were normally just rolling by, to be trapped by that endothelial cell. There are some chemical signals that cause that cell to diapodese or go between the endothelial cells into the subendothelial space. Now, the monocyte, the white blood cell, that's a foot soldier. He's just marching along, not doing anything unless there's a, a fight breaks out. Well, in this case, some other chemicals, cytokines, cause that monocyte to be converted to a macrophage. Now, macrophage is a special force guy. Don't mess with a macrophage. Its job is to find anything that's abnormal and eat it and destroy it. That's his job. So when these white cells migrate into the subendothelial space, if there's more of these cytokines there resulting from inflammation, and it encounters anything abnormal, it will then do what it's supposed to do. It will eat it and just try to destroy it. And it does that with some abnormal lipids. If a, mono, if a macrophage encounters something normal, it won't destroy it and won't eat it. It has to be abnormal for this macrophage to take it up. So the macrophage becomes filled with oxidized and glycated low-density lipoproteins, and then it becomes a foam cell. And a collection of these foam cells is what's called a fatty streak. A fatty streak is the very beginning of an atherosclerotic lesion. Now, in an autopsy study done of young people, a very high percentage of them had a fatty streak. And indeed, if you open the artery, it's just this little yellow line down the back of the arteries. It, it really is just a yellow streak. Anyway, it's the very beginning, and even some infants. And this goes back to what Jackie was talking about. I mean, if we, if we start this inflammation early, then we have early early lesions. So that's the very beginning of it. Now, we probably all have some somewhere. So Libby in his laboratory were very exquisite about explaining all of this. It starts with those adhesion molecules, the migration of the white cells, the consumption of the oxidized or glycated LDL, then the death of that macrophage, and a bunch of these dead macrophages then and all the oxidized lipids that they've collected becomes what's called the, the lipid core. Now, many times the body will try to heal over this. The endothelium will send out signals to the smooth muscles to turn into a fibroblast and cover these things up like a scar and heal it. And many times it will heal. And often when it heals, then it calcifies. And that's what we see when we look at a calcium score. Now, in the presence of continued inflammation, there, this core begins to, continues to grow and get bigger and bigger. But most of the time, we don't die from that lesion. We die from heart disease when that thing ruptures and the lipid core is exposed to the blood. And when the blood is not inside an endothelial cell, all the platelets begin to aggregate and this turns into a clot. And if the clot completely occludes that vessel, you're going to have a big heart attack or you're going to die. Sometimes that clot goes out there and doesn't completely occlude the lumen, and it heals over and becomes part of a more complex lesion, once again, sometimes calcifying. So that's the progress of atherosclerosis from fatty streak to uh, death. Now, 
the physicians here will know that there are guidelines, and we treat cholesterol by what was called the Adult Treatment Panel, or ATP. So when this article was published, I think in um, 2000 and, uh, or 2009 or 2010, uh, we were under the, the guidance of the ATP3. And the trigger for treating uh, cholesterol was an LDL of 130. So in this study, 136,000 patients admitted to the hospital with heart disease were analyzed. Well, guess what? 70% of them had an LDL less than the trigger of 130. Half were lower than 70. Now, what question should we ask? Are we about cholesterol? Should we lower the targets to treat? Well, these authors concluded we should lower the targets. And about that time, there was a lot of discussion about changing from targets, LDL targets, to using this risk calculator that some of you know about. So if you have certain risk factors that are going to have uh, supposedly lead you to an event, 7.5% chance of having an event in the next 10 years, then you qualify for statin treatment, irregardless of your LDL. This made another 13 to 15 million eligible for statin treatment. Um, about 78 million people currently eligible to be treated with statin. Maybe I should have invented a statin. So I'm asking if my theory about cholesterol and the levels to treat a wrong 70% of the time. How good is my theory? I'm going to lose at Las Vegas. <laughs> Even if I flip a coin, I'm right 50-50, right? So anyway, they, they, they changed. This is the distribution with everybody with a heart attack with pretty low LDL levels. So by me asking that simple question, is something wrong with this theory, that puts me in a cult. And I think there are probably some other members of the cult here. Stephen Nissen will read this. It says, We are losing the battle for the hearts and mind of our patients to websites developed by people with little or no scientific expertise who often peddle natural or drug-free oops, a typo, remedies for elevated cholesterol. This internet-driven cult denies statin benefits and whips up fears of side effects and then profits by selling snake oil. So it's interesting that uh, Dr. Nissen is on these treatment panels, and he's the one who helps recommend our treatment levels. He's at the Cleveland Clinic. He's probably the most prominent cardiologist in the United States uh, right now. And he says, you know, uh, he's criticizing me. If I, if I say that statins don't do any good, or if I say that people should not take them, then uh, he thinks I'm guilty of killing people. And the cholesterol trialists in Great Britain, Sir Rory Collins, I mean, he, a great fuss. You stop cholesterol, you're going to kill people. And they actually took uh, that program in Australia off the air because they were afraid it was going to kill people. So this same Dr. Nissen, in supporting the new calculator, says the science was never there for LDL targets. 
past committees made them up out of thin air. Holy cow, Dr. Nissen. I don't, you know, no wonder you're losing the hearts and minds of your patients. You're changing these things. The evidence for the LDL targets, according to him, was zero. The clinical evidence, the studies to support the calculator, are zero. None. Now, we know we all talk about correlation and causation, but... uh, Heart disease is now a pandemic. In spite of the fact that we had statins starting in the 1980s, we really haven't conquered heart disease. Many thought we would. Uh, Some Nobel laureates did an editorial that said it's going to be eliminated early in the next century. Well, it isn't. And so in the continued quest to lower cholesterol levels, new drugs have been developed. And uh, this drug... Uh, studied in the Accelerate trial, was a drug developed to raise HDL along with lowering LDL even more than statins. Well, Pfizer spent a billion dollars trying to develop their own version of this drug and abandoned it because there were too many complications and it didn't work. But in spite of the fact that Evisitvitrab lowered LDLs, raised HDL by 131%, they didn't change mortality, and they didn't change event rates. Now, who remembers the uh, Lipitor ads that said 39% risk reduction, right? I'm going to go get me some of that. Well, the reality is that the difference is pretty small. And the 39% is what's called relative risk. And relative risk is just another way to lie. Now, correlation does not mean causation. It might. It allows us to ask a question, but it doesn't prove causation. Reverse correlation, or lack of correlation, eliminates causation. So this paper demonstrates that in uh, folks of older age, there is no correlation between LDL levels and event rates. Now, suppose you take a statin. For every five years that you take a statin, even under the best circumstances, you're going to lengthen your life by maybe 1.2 to 4 days. And you're going to have a 20 or more percent chance of having a side effect. I'm going to get me some statins. Now this is an exhaustive study by Dr. Longarel in France, where they took all the statin studies, and every statin study is supported by industry. They're very expensive. To to get what's called a significant difference, you need a lot of patients. So he divided the studies to those done before 2006 when the regulations about reporting were relatively lax, and those done after 2006 with more stringent reporting requirements. And he found that those before 06 showed benefit, and those after... 06 did not show benefit. Interesting. Now, he also wants to talk about side effects. Now, it's pretty well documented that one in 50 statin takers will develop diabetes. People have argued that it's more frequent, but that's the number that we sort of agreed on. Now, let's just suppose we went down to Chula Vista here, south of here, and we found a cluster of 
heart attacks, a cluster of diabetes, I'm sorry. And we looked at the people in San Diego versus the people in Chula Vista, and we found the only difference is they're drinking water from the Chula Vista Water Department. And one in 50 gets diabetes. How long do you think they'd keep that water department? Who would go to jail? How big would the lawsuit be? Now, I've made the arguments that statins are a public health hazard. Now, we know pretty much, or I hope we've convinced you, that lowering cholesterol doesn't prevent heart disease and that cholesterol is likely not to be the cause of heart disease. Now, saturated fat, evil artery-clogging saturated fat, is bad because it raises LDL. If, raising LD, uh, if having a high LDL or lowering it with cholesterol doesn't prevent heart disease, what idiot, oops, what anencephalic <laughs> would recommend eliminating saturated fats and replacing them with Crisco and margarine? Well, the good old American Heart Association has done just that with this very recent presidential advisory. They cherry-picked about four studies from 10 or 15 years ago and ignored thousands and thousands and thousands of patients in big studies which show no correlation. And yet they still recommend that we use Crisco and margarine instead of coconut oil and lard and fat and all the other good fats that you've learned about. Now, remember, the American Heart Association made this first recommendation in 1961 that we should switch to Crisco. The American Heart Association was a very little small organization without much reach until 1956, when Procter & Gamble, oh, the maker of Crisco, gave them $1.5 million and brought them into prominence. And um, so it may just be a coincidence that a, before this advisory came out, Bayer, which now owns a soybean seed company, had promised them $500,000. Maybe not. Well, I'm telling you. <clears throat> they can't seem to change uh, their recommendations um, in spite of overwhelming evidence. Now, maybe they know what happened to the March of Dimes when polio was cured. It went away. If heart disease is cured, they're going to go away. Have you been interested in trying the new cutting-edge technology of exogenous ketones but didn't know where to get started? Let me introduce you to Perfect Keto. Visit perfectketo.com jimmy and use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 15% off your order. Perfect Keto was created by a functional medicine clinician who developed this unique formula for maximum efficacy. It's great tasting and the most affordable exogenous ketones supplement you can find that raises blood ketone levels up to 1.5 millimolar to help increase mental focus, boost your energy, and commence fat burning. It does not contain any soy, dairy, gluten, artificial sweeteners, binding agents, or anything that doesn't directly improve your health. The synergistic power of a low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat, ketogenic diet 
with Perfect Keto Exogenous Ketones will have your body running optimally. Perfect Keto is available in delicious chocolate sea salt and peaches and cream flavors. Each serving comes with 11.38 grams of high-quality beta-hydroxybutyrate for maximum ketone boosting while adding in magnesium, potassium, cocoa, stevia, and vitamin C for extra micronutrition. Again, try Perfect Keto for yourself at perfectketo.com jimmy and be sure to use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 15% off your order. Perfect Keto. Are you having issues with fatigue, the keto flu, or muscle cramping on your ketogenic diet? Then allow me to introduce you to Keto Vitals. They will solve all of these issues. Keto Vitals is a high-dose electrolyte in a pill specifically created for the unique needs of the ketogenic lifestyle. They use only the best ingredients. In fact, their form of magnesium was shown in a double-blind trial to improve insulin sensitivity. Keto Vitals is 100% guaranteed if it doesn't work, they will refund your money. Head on over to KetoVitals.com or you can go on Amazon and get free two-day shipping for Amazon Prime members. Use the coupon code KETO1515 both on Amazon and at KetoVitals.com to get 15% off of your order. Keto Vitals. Now, I'm not criticizing any individual physician who still believes in lowering LDL, really, I I feel for their situation. I know the sacrifices every doctor here or around the country has made to become a doctor and continues to make to work hard and care for patients in sometimes difficult circumstances. I know that you've got guidelines. Some of you believe the guidelines, some of you don't, but you have to follow them. We've trusted our professors, our universities, our institutions, to give us the right kind of information. And trust is really critical for everything. I trust that you won't hit me when I go into a crosswalk just because I'm old and ugly. We trust is a critical part of all of our life, and we've all done it. We've trusted the information we've gotten. Well, I think we've all been betrayed, and I think we've been betrayed by our institutions in this regard about heart disease. This is the editor of The Lancet. That much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may simply be untrue. Afflicted by studies of small sample sizes, tiny effects, invalid exploratory analyses, and flagrant conflicts of interest, together with an obsession of pursuing fashionable trends of dubious importance, science has taken a turn towards darkness. That's the most prestigious medical journal in Europe. And here's our most prestigious medical journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, the former editor, Maria Angel. It is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I read slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as editor of the New England Journal. Anybody feeling betrayed? by our trusted journals, trusted universities, trusted institutions. Now, not all medical research is this way, but a lot of it is. And it's become a a bigger and bigger problem. Very few studies can be replicated or repeated with the same result. 
and have to be, well, they don't always have to be retracted. There's now a website called Retraction Watch, which monitors every day all the studies that end up being retracted because they've been proven to be wrong for one reason or another. Uh, so it's a huge problem, and there's, there's so many journals that are desperate for articles that they'll publish almost anything. Well, as wonderful as medicine is, and as many advances as we've made over time, we're really a pretty spectacular failure in regards to diabetes. Probably 130,000 diabetics and pre-diabetics. We're overweight and obese, two-thirds of us. Heart disease, in spite of Lipitor, still kills most people. The burden, the cost burden on us is enormous. Now, let's talk about homeostasis for a minute. What's that word? It's uh, the, the French called it milieu interior, or internal environment. We try to keep everything stable inside of our bodies. Just hold your breath for a minute and see how powerful the drive is to maintain your carbon dioxide and oxygen level. We maintain sodium, potassium, lots of other electrolytes in a very, very narrow range. And we do that to maintain the billions of electrochemical reactions that take place all the time that cause us to live. We have defense mechanisms, we have our skin, we have other barriers, our intestinal lining. I mean, the trillions of bacteria that are in our intestine don't get into us most of the time. Our skin has got 50 million per square centimeter, per square inch. Um, so we have barriers, but we also have a brilliant immune system that, that you know, looks at threats, literally millions and billions of threats all the time, all the bacteria, everything we breathe in, it decides if it's an enemy and needs to be destroyed, or it decides it's harmless and lets it go. So our, our immune system is working all the time to keep us alive. We have lots of feedback systems that help us keep alive, and Encoded in the DNA of every single cell is the drive to survive, to preserve itself, and to contribute to the overall well-being of the whole organism. Now let's talk about sugar homeostasis for a minute. We control those other things in very narrow ranges, and if we get far away, we get sick. How much sugar is in your blood right now? You have about five liters of blood, which is 50 deciliters, and the upper limit of blood sugar is 100. And 5 grams equals 5,000 milligrams. So if we take the 5,000 milligrams in a teaspoon, divide it by the 50 deciliters, we get the fact that it takes one teaspoon of sugar to raise your blood sugar from zero to 100. Now, that's not quite true because that's in the absence of insulin, and that's, you know, half of this spoonful is fructose, but it's relatively close. Now, if we go, stop at the double arches or whatever your favorite fast food place is, have the meal, which we've all had, and uh, we end up with 254 grams of glucose, some 50 teaspoons. By my previous calculation, that would make your blood sugar 5,000, which would be fatal. Now, it obviously doesn't do that. Insulin crams it into cells here and there and moves it around so that, once again, trying to maintain homeostasis. But if we look at a general population that has this meal, their blood sugar is going to go to 200, 300, and then eventually come back down again. Now, 
we want to talk about endothelium. And uh, Michael Brownlee is a professor uh, in New York of endocrinology, I believe, gave the Banting lecture in 2004 and published this paper along with it. Banting is the inventor of insulin. And it just so happens that Michael Brownlee was eight years old when he developed type 1 diabetes in 1964, I think. Oh, 69. Um, at any rate, at that time, insulin saved his life, obviously. But insulin also, uh, at the time, they said, well, you might live to 30, but you're going to die of going blind, uh, and you're, you're going to go blind, you're going to lose your kidneys, we're going to cut your leg off, you're going to have neuropathy, and ultimately you're going to die of coronary disease, which most diabetics do have. Well, he found this unacceptable, and so this paper was not only a scientific paper, but it was a personal one for him. And you all have heard of Dr. Richard Bernstein, who's now 80, probably the oldest type 1 diabetic in the world, who emphasizes a lot about controlling sugar and maintaining glucose homeostasis. Well, Dr. Um, Dr. Brownlee said, what is it? Why do these specific set of complications occur? What is different? Because all of these affect the endothelial cell. What is it about the endothelial cell that makes it so vulnerable to hyperglycemia? And the answer is that it is at the mercy of blood glucose. It can't downregulate. Other cells with uh, glucose receptors, and you heard about the GLUT4 and 1 and 2, they can downregulate. They can say, no, we have enough glucose inside of our cell. We don't want any more. We don't need any more. And I don't care how much insulin you send around here. We're not taking any more sugar. Well, the endothelial cell... On one side of it is the serum, on the other side is the interstitial fluid. Usually the glucose is the same between those two, and so the glucose inside the endothelial cell is exactly the same as those other two tissues. It, it can downregulate a little bit, but basically it's at the mercy of blood sugar. So uh, Brownlee then um, has done a lot of work, and others have too as well, to identify exactly what happens. And so he proposed four pathways and then a unifying mechanism to unite them all together. <coughs> Just a word about glycation. Now, he's talking about intracellular glycation and the damage that occurs. But glycation is when we make fudge. We take milk and sugar, put them on the stove, cook it for a little while, it turns into fudge. Well, we can't take that fudge and put it back in the refrigerator and have it turn back into milk and sugar. The same way in our bodies, these glycation reactions are very often permanent. Now, the most common known glycation product is hemoglobin A1C, of course. <clears throat> but uh, the glycation products not only are intracellular, but they happen all over the body, and they have lots of other effects, arthritis, bones, uh, cataracts, all sorts of things are caused by the excess production of advanced glycation products. Now, so he decided that all of these mechanisms were tied together by the fact that because of the high intracellular glucose, all that energy was presented to the mitochondrial electron transport chain and had to go through that chain. Now, we always produce free radicals all the time when we send energy through that uh, electron transport chain to make ATP. 
but the reaction is driven by the high glucose, and so it makes more superoxide molecules than our natural antioxidant defenses can handle. So these oxygen-free radicals end up damaging the cell, hurting it, and possibly killing the endothelial cell. So we know that in inflammation follows injury. You don't get it without an injury. So these things are constantly injuring the endothelial cell. And that then triggers what we talked about before. If that cell is injured, it begins to secrete inflammatory cytokines, which attract the white blood cell, and on and on and on until we have an atherosclerotic lesion. Now, nitric oxide is the signaling molecule that uh, dilates our blood vessels and does lots of other things. It's the main signaling molecule from the endothelial cell. But as I say, when that cell is injured, all of those things happen. The adhesion molecules, the macrophages, the oxidized lipids, and that causes us not to be able to dilate our blood vessels, which gives us hypertension. Uh, we downregulate our nitric oxide synthetase, and so it's all of these problems. Now, all of us have had that meal, all of us have elevated blood sugar, but we didn't die. So I liken what happens to our endothelium to a sunburn. If I go out here this afternoon and uh, sit in the sun, I might get a sunburn. If it happens to me once every summer, it's no big deal. If it happens to me once a month, it's no big deal. But if I go out and sunburn myself three times a day, 365 days a year, what's going to happen to my skin? Same thing happens to the endothelium. If I injure that endothelium three times a day with my big, high-glucose, high-sugar meal, every day, three times a day, over a period of many years, my arteries are going to close up. The capillaries in my eye are going to close. I'm going to go blind. The capillaries in my kidney are going to quit. I'm going to need dialysis. The capillaries in my nerves are going to go bad. I'm going to have horrible neuropathy. And I'm going to build up atherosclerotic lesions all over my body by this same process. We do such a horrible job of diabetes. Think about it. If you went in with some other condition, a cancer on your skin, the doctor said, well, we're going to cure you. We're going to cut that off. If you go with diabetes, they said, we're not going to cure you. We have no intention of curing you. We're going to treat you until you get inevitable complications. And that's the, sort of the sad thing about the standards. If I treat a diabetic patient and he goes blind and has renal failure and gets his leg cut off and then dies, I've done a good job. If I have one hypoglycemic episode, then I've fallen below the standard of care and I'm vulnerable. So it's just, uh, it, in my opinion, it's a very sad state of affairs and it's promoted by, oh, the ADA? You already heard the other day that the absolute requirement for glucose is zero. You've heard a lot about you know, how much we can tolerate and what, where are the levels you need to go to be healthy. And yet they tell me I need 50 to 100 grams per meal, that I should eat lots of grains because they raise blood sugar. Oh, and then I get to take a little more insulin. The Heart Association recommends that I eat toxic vegetable oils. They recommend that I eat lots of carbohydrates 
and they recommend I take statins. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to take control of our own health. Dr. William Davis of, of Wheat Belly fame has got a new book called Undoctored, and it's saying, you know, we need to self-care. And we do. We've been betrayed, as I said. And we need to take control ourselves. And that's why these conferences are so wonderful. Because it's educating, and you'll educate somebody else. And hopefully it will spread, and hopefully, ultimately, those institutions will change. Now, a glucose meter is the most powerful fitness tool in the world. <laughs> not a treadmill, not weights, not doing a stupid Ironman. Having normal blood glucose is the greatest thing you can do to stay healthy. I'm excited to see the non-invasive continuous glucose monitors come, and I hope they're going to be available for all of us. Now, my little thing is maybe I should connect a continuous glucose monitor to a shock collar. <laughs> and then we'd be healthy. So there are lots of other things that can engine the endothelium, which you may hear about next. There are lots of things, but anything that engines the endothelium follows this same mechanism. So the highway to health is paid with hyperglycemia. Thank you very much. Since Doug had said that this is Q&A time oh, okay. and not for statements, okay. uh, in light of that, you did ask a rhetorical question early in your, um, early in your, early in your presentation about whether or not it was a badge of honor. And I think I speak for many people here that indeed, sir, it was a badge of honor, that you were willing to risk, willing to risk your license to further the discovery of the science. Thank you. Thank and you. now my question. Okay. <laughs> okay, and you're forgiven for that too. <laughs> uh, I think this has got to be stated rather distinctively because I've certainly done a bit of research on cholesterol myself. I have yet to find, and you will either be able to confirm this or not, of any study that shows that LDL particle count or LDL cholesterol alone is atherogenic while controlling for oxidative stress inflammation, and endothelial damage. Is that true? That's true. There's no such thing as atherogenic dyslipidemia. Awesome. It's a lie. Thank you so much. <clears throat> I didn't pay him to make that statement, by the way. Yeah. Hi, I'm a GP around Montreal, Canada. Oh. And I treat patients with uh, LCHF, low-carb, keto, intermittent fasting. My problem is that those patients are not my patients. They, are, they come to me or they are referred to me, and so eventually they go back to their doctors. And um, even though I get it, and I, I love your talk today, and I love you, and, <laughs> but I, they still have to go back to their GPs. Yes, right. So... Um, how do I do this? And, you know, how do I not put them on statins or keep them on statins if it's not necessary? 
I, I know TGs go improve, HDL goes up, but I'm not sure that's enough for all the other doctors out there who need to follow guidelines and who think what I'm doing is completely crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a tough situation, as I mentioned. Uh, you know, you're stuck. If you don't follow the guidelines, you're guilty of malpractice, basically. I so, uh, an electronic medical record makes it so that, at least in the States, you know, everybody knows what, what you recommended is there, so they yes. can analyze it. So, uh, you know, God bless you, keep up the good fight. All you can do is write the script for the Lipitor and say, throw it in the wastebasket on the way out. <laughs> Stay on your low-carb diet and stay healthy. But then those doctors will see elevated LDLs in some patients on LCHF. And those doctors will, you know, get on my case. Right. They'll tell them you need a statin. And as I say, there are lots of really good people who still believe it. I mean, one of my closest cardiology friends, uh, my exact same age, started exercising before I did, has been following the low-fat, high-carb diet for all of these years making fun of me for eating the whole egg while he would just eat the white, scolding me for butter. He recently had his calcium scan done at 6,700. Wow. And he just had two stents in his right corner. So who was right and who was wrong? So just persist, and ultimately we're going to be okay. These kind of things, your efforts, the tide will turn. There will always be a segment of population that's too stupid to learn. I mean, 40 million people still smoke. You can't, you can't fix them all. Thank you. So I think at this point in the presentation or in the conference, we all know that uh, the uh, HbA1c score can be improved on a low-carb, high-fat diet. So that's one sort of AGE that we know we can improve through... Uh, dietary measure. Um, in regards to this calcium score, is that something that we can also improve through uh, nutritional measures or once the calcium uh, score is like your, your friend 6700, it is what it is? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, the same Bill Davis who, of Wheat Belly fame, I was lucky enough to review a paper that he published where he did show a reduction in calcium scores. He treated his patients with 6 grams of omega-3 and 5,000 units of vitamin D daily. And he did show a reduction. It took him forever to get it published. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that you can cure it. So we don't know the answer, whether we can change calcium scores. But calcium scores are, uh, it's interesting. We have a lot of argument about them. They, they tell you some things, but they don't tell you exactly what's going to happen. A calcium calcified plaque is generally a stable plaque that's not going to rupture and give you sudden death. What we need is something, and lots of people are working on it, something to show us where we have a soft plaque that's getting ready to rupture. And lots of people are working on it. Thank you for that excellent presentation. Oh, uh, I'm a diabetes nurse educator from London, Ontario, Canada. Ah. And uh, my, she's not my colleague, but well, we met. Yay for the Maple Leafs. Yes, yay for, yay the, for the Maple Leafs. I do a lot of work out in primary care, and one of the things that we struggle with is that a lot of our patients are, we use Framingham risk scores, and this drives um, whether physicians want to um, start patients on statins. So 
what, what is your feeling on these risk scores? That's my first question. Hope I can well, when we go back and reanalyze the Framingham data, it probably was wrong. The difference between those patients, the, the heart attack difference between those patients high and low cholesterol in the middle, is very small, two or three percent difference. And even under the most favorable circumstances, you know, the, the survival difference between taking a statin and not taking a statin is one percent or one and a half percent. So um, the guidelines are there. I, I can't change them. I don't think they'll change soon because of just the money and the politics. So all you can do is, like I said, is persist, keep doing what you're doing, and save one life at a time. And you all can save more than I ever did in the OR. And one other really quick question. Some of the global leaders in, in lipids are saying lower is better. So even getting lipids down to where they were when a baby was, when babies are born, like down to 0.5. Yeah, well, that's interesting. The, the new drug is called these PCSK9 inhibitors. They take LDL down to 30. They take them down to 0.1. 21, holy one. cow. Now, they point probably one. won't be, you know what? They won't be happy till it's zero. And when it's zero, no one will die of a heart attack. So there you go. <laughs> the PCSK9, those things taking the cholesterol to 20, the survival rate is exactly the same. The event rate is exactly the same. Hi. Uh, excellent. Um, yep. I, I like the information. Um, my question is, uh, my question is, um, do you think... <sighs> I'm not trying to say statins instead of lifestyle or statins instead of ketogenic diet, but what I, my concern is that it seems like statins may have some benefit that's not related to LDL lowering. Um, I understand that there is an increased risk of diabetes, and obviously that would be bad. Um, you know, I come with a little prejudice. My dad had his bypass at uh, 68 with quadruple um, bypass. And uh, the standard then that was right around when statins were invented was that people just had their bypass and died five years later or had their bypass redone and then died. Um, he uh, lived to be 92 and died of his uh, mitral valve that didn't get replaced. Or, I'm sorry, aortic valve. Um, but uh, he continued to eat whatever the hell he wanted. And uh, he did take statins, and that was the one difference was the statins. And so that's an N of one, and I realize you don't make decisions on that, but I just wonder about the anti-inflammatory, if you, if you believe there's right. anything to that. Well, there was a, a, a lot of work and a lot of published literature about the pleiotrophic effects of statins. That is, early on, some of the papers showed a survival benefit even before there was a lipid-lowering benefit. And that came out of Harvard with Libby and Ridker because Ritker was the co-inventor of the CRP test. So that's why they promoted inflammation. That's why they tried to sell statins as lowering inflammation. They might lower CRP, but that's a secondary marker. That's a downstream marker. And it probably had to be something else. I, even if it did lower inflammation, that's not the answer. And that's sort of the disappointing thing about both Brownlee and... Libby, did they ever ask what's causing the inflammation? No. They said, what medicine can we invent that will lower the inflammation? There's a study going now, now giving patients methotrexate, a very powerful immunosuppressant, to try to lower inflammation and treat heart disease with methotrexate. We've gone insane. Okay. Thank you.
I have a question about the adhesion molecule. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, uh, obviously the endothelial cell becomes inflamed and then an, in, uh, an adhesion molecule appears on the surface. Do you know whether that comes out of the cell or whether it's something that's in the, cytos in the, in the uh, bloodstream? It's a little of both. The, the endothelial cell can produce them. But if I have remote inflammation somewhere else, then it, ah, then the then circulation they can travel will cause and then stick on endothelial cells. That's why that's why people with chronic infections have a little more heart disease than others. Ah. It's because the remote inflammation causes those uh, adhesion molecules to, to attach. Do you, do you know what the what the the various types of adhesion molecules are, or any any of them? Oh, there's a list. I can, I can. I'll look it up online. Okay, thanks. Right. Appreciate it. Oh, like me, height's challenged. Yeah. Well, I got a short comment, and then I do have a question. I'm a home health nurse. Uh, Bless you. And thank you. But for a while, I tried to go the no-oil vegan uh, way, and it didn't work for me because I got horribly depressed. But I went to hear a speaker, and I would really encourage you to develop a talk on the ED that everybody's afraid, you know, you said ED, not that ED. Well, please develop a talk on that ED because there's one doctor uh, that promotes that, and he gets up and he brags about his sex life and how, you know, it's all because that he eats rice and beans and no oil and is totally <laughs> against all that. Uh, well. So that's my comment. I mean, really, I think there would be a lot of people interested in that. But my question for you is that our... Um, there's one movie, that, and I've heard the, the good doctor talk about how uh, they sent people to him that had the worst heart disease ever, and he put them on a diet and he, of kale, uh, chard, beets and beet greens, watercress, and spinach. And they reversed their heart disease all but one. And supposedly, it, these are the vegetables that are high in nitric oxide. Well, nitric oxide is the precursor to, mm -hmm. I mean, the nitrates in the vegetables are yeah. precursors. So beets and spinach and all that are, are good. And so they would be beneficial. Yes. So can we make this question quick? Please? Yeah, okay. So my question is, how long does it take, uh, or has there been any research on uh, the length of time on uh, the keto or low carb diet, high fat, to to build up nitric oxide in the body to help reverse okay. some of this. If you eat beets, that happens pretty rapidly. So almost immediately, there will be a, a, an elevation in nitric oxide. Uh, I think you may have answered the question while I was standing in line, <laughs> but that's the reliability of the calcium score because I have performed over 9,000 autopsies as the medical examiner in Hawaii for the last 30 years. And what I've seen, uh, there is a small percentage, of, as you mentioned, of soft atherosclerosis with no calcium. And uh, the, a comment that I'd like to make also uh, from 1980s all the way to two years back, within that 30 years, in the beginning, yes, heart attack was mostly in the 60s, 70s, 80s, but 
towards the latter part of my career, it went down to from 50, 40, 30, and it's an amazing number of younger people dying of heart attack with both soft atherosclerosis as well as calcific atherosclerosis. So, of course, you know, with the increase in obesity rate, uh, that's what I saw. But uh, the reliability of the calcium scores, especially in this younger population that were uh, that I um, autopsied, had more soft atherosclerosis mm. uh, than um, the calcific atherosclerosis that I saw in the older population. Well, there's there's a lot of difference in how people will respond to the inflammation. The genetic differences, I think, probably have more to do with our ability to handle sugar than anything else inherent, because you look at populations who were not exposed to sugar and now suddenly are, uh, the American Indian, the, the native uh, of First Nations of Canada, Indians, Chinese, who haven't for years been exposed to so much sugar and now get it, they have accelerated disease, and they have what's called diffuse disease. The worst diffuse disease I've ever seen is in East Indians. Living La Vida Local, this show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs, time to explore the longest running health podcast hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show. Dot com. Woo!